Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Hi there, my name is Bryce, and today on the Students of Surgery podcast, we're going to be joined by Professor Bryant. Prof, what are we going to be covering today? So today we're going to cover blood tests that are commonly performed in general surgery and the tests that we're going to cover or include are the full blood count, urea and electrolytes, the C-reactive protein and we're going to finish off with procalcitonin. And Prof, why is this an important topic? So blood tests should be seen as adjuncts. They should be ordered with insight and results should be used to influence patient management. In other words, don't simply order blood tests because they appear on a phlebotomy form. Know what you are looking for and how best to achieve this. What is very important is that blood test results must always be interpreted by taking the clinical context into consideration. What is a full blood count or an FBC, Prof? So this is a test that measures the actual components of your blood. In other words, its cells and specific information about these cells. In some parts of the world, it is called a complete blood test, or a CBC. And when would we use a full blood count? So it is a very good general test of overall health, but specifically we use it when we are worried that a patient may have had an infection, or maybe anemic, or have clotting abnormalities. It may be used to assist in making a diagnosis, as well as monitoring improvement of a patient. So, what does an FBC contain? So a standard full blood count includes a white cell count or leukocytes, a red cell count also known as erythrocytes, hemoglobin, and then measures of the cell, so mean corpuscular volume, and then platelets. If a differential count is added, then the white cell subtypes are also measured, such as the neutrophils and the monocytes, etc. However, one must separately request the differential count. It is not done routinely with an FBC. So, how do we interpret a full blood count then? What is important to remember is that an FBC is not a definitive diagnostic test. Depending on what the reason is for requesting an FBC, it will direct me as to how I start reading the result. If I suspect a patient has an infection, I will start by reading the white cell count. It may either be high or low. Thereafter, I will look at the platelet count, as platelets also decrease in the presence of infection especially fungal infections. And finally, the the hemoglobin. If the reason was because a patient is bleeding, I would start by looking at the hemoglobin, and if it is low, I would then look for the mean corpuscular volume. If the patient is anemic, the MCV helps with identifying the cause of the anemia. A normocytic anemia usually indicates an acute bleed. A microcytic anemia is a chronic anemia and often will represent a chronic blood loss. A macrocytic anemia is associated with vitamin B12 deficiency and would not be expected in the scenario of a bleeding patient. What are some of the other disease conditions that may be suspected? The hematocrit is a measure of the ratio of red blood cells to plasma and is a good indicator of a patient's fluid status. A high hematocrit indicates a high proportion of cells to plasma and is generally interpreted as the patient being dehydrated. A low white blood cell count or leukopenia may be caused by medical conditions such as diseases that affect the bone marrow such as your leukemias and your autoimmune disorders or even cancers can give you low white cell counts. Some medications may also cause the white cell count to drop. 
As mentioned, high white blood cell count is often due to an infection, but anything that causes inflammation may also increase it to varying degrees. Bone marrow cancers may also cause a markedly increased white cell count. A low platelet count usually is due to a coagulation disorder. However, it may also be due to hypersplenism or bone marrow dysfunction. Again, a low platelet count as any other result must be reinterpreted in conjunction with the clinical presentation of a patient. So let's move away from the full blood count or the CBC and talk about a UNE. What is a UNE? So a urea and electrolyte test is probably the most commonly ordered biochemical test in medicine and it measures renal function as well as physiological hemostasis. And what does it consist of? So it measures the metabolic products of urea and creatinine and then it measures certain ions which include sodium, potassium, chloride and bicarbonate ions. Then how do we measure renal function? We look at the urea and creatinine. Urea is a breakdown product of several metabolic processes, whereas creatine is a breakdown product of protein metabolism. Both molecules assist with the excretion of nitrogen from the body. Urea is synthesized in the liver and is a good marker of acute renal function, as opposed to creatinine which is mainly produced in skeletal muscle and is a marker of chronic renal dysfunction. Glomerular filtration rate is the rate at which blood is filtered in the kidneys and provides a more accurate reflection of renal function. Most equations which measure GFR include creatine. With chronic renal dysfunction, one must check calcium levels as well, as these may be low due to the kidney's inability to promote calcium absorption in the intestines, as well as anemia by impaired erythropoietin production through the kidney. For more detailed information on kidney physiology and renal function, I would suggest our listeners go to the podcast in the Apprentices of Surgery series entitled Renal Physiology by Dr. Kumar. So just briefly, how do we interpret these ions? I guess broadly speaking, they are either increased, so hyper, or decreased, or hypo. And there are a myriad of causes for each of these. So a high sodium, in other words, hypernatremia, is usually either due to an increased intake of salt or a low blood volume. Hyponatremia is usually caused by the increased retention of water or excessive loss of sodium. If we look at potassium, so hyperkalemia, which is an increased potassium, it's probably the most common and definitely the most acute life-threatening electrolyte abnormality. Causes for this include kidney failure, acidosis, cellular lysis. However, commonly they may be falsely elevated through hemolyzed blood samples. In other words, blood that is hemolyzed during the process of taking the blood sample itself. Hence, if the result is hyperkalemia, always check the report for hemolysis. The lab will usually report this immediately below the, the value that they've typed in for you. If absent, always assume that the result is true and correct it as a matter of urgency as hyperkalemia can result in lethal cardiac dysrhythmias. Hypokalemia is different. Some of the causes are exactly opposite to hyperkalemia. You may have increased losses with diuresis through vomiting and diarrhea as well as from medications and medications that typically cause a hypokalemia are your corticosteroids and your thiazide diuretics. However, hypokalemia is not lethal. And what about bicarbonate? So bicarbonate is important in determining the pH of the blood. A low level indicates acidosis, 
whereas an increased level indicates a metabolic alkalosis. Hence, a UNE is a test, apart from an arterial blood gas, that provides insight into a patient's acid-base status. So then, when should we do a urea and electrolytes test? I would say in all emergency admissions. For elective admissions, it will depend on the reason for the admission. But if they're going for a planned surgery, or are going to get intravenous contrast enhanced CT scans, or if they've got chronic conditions such as diabetes, mellitus, or hypertension, they should all have a UNE. Effectively, there are very few admitted patients or patients planned for investigations or interventions that don't have an indication for a UNE. And then what about a CRP? C-reactive protein is an acute phase protein produced in the liver and is a very non-specific test, which is a marker of inflammation. This inflammation may be caused by infection, by malignancies, or any other cause of inflammation, such as autoimmune disorders, but even trauma can cause a raised CRP. It is not diagnostic of any condition. There is what we call high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is abbreviated to HSCRP, which is a sensitive marker of coronary artery disease. However, it is not routinely done and must be specifically requested from the laboratory. And again, we only request this test in patients whom are concerned that may have underlying cardiac ischemia, either as a myocardial infarction or angina. So then, how soon after an infection or any other inflammatory insult does it increase? So the liver starts producing CRP about six to eight hours after the onset of infection and peak concentrations are usually reached between 36 to 50 hours later. Its half-life plasma elimination is 48 hours. So in what circumstances should we use CRP levels? Most commonly in surgery, we would use it as a marker of treatment response to a diagnosed condition. For example, a patient with acute cholecystitis being treated with antibiotics, we would measure the CRP and repeat it two to three days later to demonstrate a physiological improvement or worsening. But as said previously, the result must be taken into consideration with the patient's current condition. CRP has been used in a few clinical settings as a predictor of severe disease, such as in severe acute pancreatitis. An increase of more than 90 mg per deciliter from admission levels or an absolute value greater than 190 mg per deciliter after 48 hours predicts severe disease and the potential of complications. Similar associations have also been made in critically ill patients admitted in an ICU environment and patients with severe pneumonia. And then what is a PCT level? PCT is a precursor protein of calcitonin which is normally synthesized by the C cells of the thyroid gland. But in response to bacterial infections, multiple cell types throughout the body are actually able to produce PCT. It has a plasma elimination half-life of 24 to 35 hours, which is shorter than that of CRP. Then what are the benefits of using a PCT? So unlike a CRP, PCT levels are not raised by viral infections and most autoimmune diseases. It has both diagnostic and prognostic value in systemic bacterial infections and be may, may be used to monitor therapy there. So then, CRP or PCT? Which one of these do I choose and when? So PCT has been found to be superior to CRP in terms of sensitivity, so 77% versus 75%, 
but it is much better specificity, whereas it's about 79% versus 67% in the differentiation of bacterial septicemia from non-infectious systemic inflammatory response syndromes. PCT levels are raised much earlier during an infectious process in comparison with CRP. Remember the 4 to 12 hours for PCT versus the 24 to 38 hours for CRP. And this facilitates the earlier diagnosis of septicemia. PCT is found to be superior to CRP in terms of accuracy in the identification and to assess the severity of sepsis, even though both markers cannot be used in differentiating infectious from non-infectious clinical syndromes. PCT can be used as a prognostic marker as its levels relate with bacterial load and severity of infection, which is not the case for a CRP. So then, why don't we always use a PCT? CRP levels are not influenced by renal disease or renal replacement therapy, which is a significant um, downside for PCTs because they are affected by those diseases. Another factor though is to consider the cost. PCT is substantially more expensive than a CRP. If we look in South Africa, a CRP will cost 181 Rand, whereas a PCT currently costs 768 Rand. So, would you be able to summarize these blood tests for us? No blood test should be done as a routine. You must always have a question which you would like to answer with a test. Having said that though, a full blood count and a urea and electrolytes provide information about acute as well as chronic well-being of a patient, and my threshold for requesting these two is very low. In our environment, we tend to use far more CRP tests than PCT levels, but it's very important to know the indications for each, the pros and cons of each, and the value of using each one and how to interpret them. Thank you for your time, Prof, and we look forward to future podcasts. With regard to blood tests in general surgery, we highly recommend our listeners also to listen to the podcast on tumor markers. Thank you. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.